Okay, so today I'm in uh, Pant Wilking Stables with Tim Vaughan. Thanks very much, Tim, for taking your busy up here. I can see that, so uh, uh, for taking the time out. Um, this, is the, this is the sort of home of your training empire since you took out a full license in 2008. Uh, since then, you've sent out over 800 winners. I mean, where did the dream to become a trainer start? Yeah, it's an interesting one, really. I, did, I don't suppose I started with a dream. It was more a case that I, I wanted to um, have a few point-to-pointers. I was... I originated in the point to point field. That's how I sort of developed, and uh, I was riding plenty of winners, and things were going well. And I got asked to train one, uh, which I did, and it won a race. And uh, you know, it just sort of evolved from there. Part of it then was a, a move. I didn't have the facilities where I was. We had literally three sort of tin stables, or tin sheeted stables, I should say, in, in a semi-detached house. And we realised, or I was, I was working full time at the time, and I needed to um, to expand. So the dream was to buy, acquire some land where I could generate a bit of a business, where I'd have a sort of livery yard and, and a few pointer pointers, and then potentially get planning for a house and, and live on the land because we didn't have the money just to go and buy a, a ready-made yard, so to speak. So it was born really through that, and then. Uh, one particular owner, a chap called um, Andrew Lowry of Optimum Racing, he, um, he I rode a horse from one day and it won, uh, and he asked me to train one, and uh, anyway, it did, and everything went smoothly, and he sent it under rules then, um, and he said, geez, you've done all the work on this, and it literally transferred for 14 days, and, and it ran very well uh, after leaving the yard. He said, why didn't you get a license? So that's where the idea was born, really. Okay, now, you, as far as I can gather, you didn't actually come from a racing background? No, not at all. Um, no, no, that's the last thing in the world I came from, really. I'm, I'm uh, sort of uh, completely new to the racing industry. My parents um, had a sort of quite a large um, car repair garage and, and, and paint spraying and, and, and various things, and um, they bought sort of a small holding and brought my brothers a couple of ponies and both my brothers rode and then I sort of got into the riding, thoroughly enjoyed it. And my mum, in fairness, she traveled the, the width and breadth of the country, taking me competing as a child. And then- Com- Competing in what? Uh, pony club, um, okay. Jim Carner, show jumping, eventing, all sort of um, fairly normal sort of activities in uh, as a younger child. And I was actually approached then by, um, as, it, as it happens, Christian Williams, the trainer's dad, Robert, and he said, why don't you come and ride out a few horses for me? I train Pointer Pointers. I did just that. And Robert said, why don't you ride in a race or two for me? And that's how it started. And he gave me a great leg up. I started riding winners for him and, and, and it started picking up from there, really. And uh, that, that's how it, you know, we originated from. But the training itself then, I, you know, I was trial and error to start with. It went well. Most of the things that we did seemed to go right for me. And it, it was, it, you know, it developed into a dream and it developed into a, a snowball. It just kept going and going. I couldn't believe how, how it could have grown as quickly um, organically as it did, really. But it was, um, it was a roller coaster, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But you're actually a qualified chartered surveyor, is that right? So you that, did your schoolwork while you were still... <clears throat> My parents said to me um, they didn't want me to have anything to do with horses. That's the last job in the world. They said, it's no money, they bring rags to your asses. And uh, uh, anyway, I, I, I didn't. And I said, that's fine. They said, look, go to university. They were both self-employed. And, you know, it can be up and down in, 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 in industry and business. And they said, oh, just go and, you know, be an employee. You get a job somewhere. So... I went to university, qualified as a, um, a property surveyor, a charter surveyor effectively, um, joined a corporate, a national corporate uh, company in Cardiff called Knight Frank, did a th- three or four years there. Then I went and moved to a local practice called Herbert R. Thomas, um, as a, and I opened up a commercial division there, buying, selling, letting anything commercially from retail units, industrial units and the like. And uh, that's really how I come across the land where, where I'm at now, Pant Wilkin. I, I met the landowner uh, on a completely different job and we got chatting about what I enjoyed and what he did. And he said, oh, geez, he said, a train used to um, canter in some of my fields. Um, anyway, I agreed to come and look at the spot and I was walking through the fields and, and measuring up in my strides every stride <laughs> I went. And I agreed to deal with him then, then that night to, um, to buy the land. Yeah, and we'll talk about the land a bit later on because it's no secret to how you get them fit looking at... Uh, but so how... I assume you were still riding in point-to-point and stuff when all this was going on. So how old were you when you got your first ride in the point? Yeah, so I, I rode as a child and then I started riding at 
point of point in a 16, so I was still in school. Um, again, my mum used to drive me around to ride the horses and things. And then as I got a bit older, then um, went off to university. But I, I studied um, in Glamorgan, which isn't far from us, so I could travel back on the weekends to uh, continue that and riding out for yards and getting the rides. And then I did a sandwich placement year then in in um, Thameswater property up in, uh, up in Reading and I just made a few f local phone calls to local trainers and one of them happened to be a chap called Tim Underwood who, uh, who gave me plenty of point rides up that neck of the woods and also it was Alan and Lonely Hill. Um, so started riding out for them and sort of branched out on my network of connections I suppose and uh, was riding out to keep fit and then I'd come home on the weekends to ride and things um, and that's really where, where the Ponder Pointing all started. Um, when I went full time then with Knight Frank, they were very supportive and likewise Herbert R. Thomas, you know, it was quite a, I wouldn't say a selling point for them, but they enjoyed sort of me doing it and, and supporting it. And, and, and it was only then, I suppose, when I was about 23, 24, I took out a, a permit and eventually then took out a um, uh, full licence in July 2008. It's a tough old game that point to point ride, isn't it? You, oh, in, all yeah. in all weathers, and you've got very limited <coughs> facilities now, so I mean, it toughens you up a bit. Oh, it, it certainly does. And uh, my my main competitor for most of my life was Evan Williams, who obviously holds a license and does extremely well now. So it was a good breeding ground, really. I, I had Evan, who was a uh, you know four, seven or eight years older than me. You had Christian Williams coming up and and beneath me, um, and there was some very good lads, Di Jones, Clark the Course at Foss last now and things. So it was a competitive competitive old sport um, in South Wales and uh, you, you had to be uh, on your guard at every minute. Yeah, it was competitive, but you were champion. I was, yeah, I was champion for a few years actually and uh, yeah, that's, look, that's how it um, evolved and really I, I got on top of it and I was fortunate enough, I don't think it was through sheer riding ability, but I, I talked well enough to ensure that I got on the fastest horses and, uh, and used my brain in that division. Well, hopefully I got this right. You rode 117 winners between the flags. That is exactly right, yes. Yeah, so it seems an abrupt number to end on. What, what, why did you finish? Yeah, it's a funny one, really. And, and, and my now wife, Abby, asked me the same question. I literally got off a horse one day and said, oh, that's it. I don't want to ride racehorses anymore. And uh, she asked me why. And, and do you know, I mentally, I think, I was working full-time as a chart surveyor. I was in the office from 8 in the morning till, till probably 6, 7 o'clock at night. When I was training the horses as well, then um, my wife and I, we were up at, you know, four to half past, mucking out, riding out before I went to work. Uh, so everything on the horse front was done by eight o'clock. And then um, I was coming home, managing my rides in the evening, managing the horses I started to train. You know, I was going to bed 11, 12 o'clock and I'd get up at four o'clock. And I did that for two or three years. And I, I just think it all got on top of me, really. So... I just thought, you know, I've got to earn a living and I was getting a bit old and different responsibilities, you know, you've got to pay a mortgage and things. And uh, uh, I just took the view, look, I need to be a bit more mature and grown up and, 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 and put my energies into my day job, which at the time was the surveying. Uh, and I couldn't do it all. So when I stopped riding, it enabled me then to have a few pointer pointers and have a bit of fun. And I generally sort of started it all off as a bit of fun if I had 10 point of pointers and was a chartered surveyor and had a reasonably nice house and gallops there you know that that was my dream really I literally thought no bigger than 10 12 point of pointers and but I did want my own gallops my own land and my own house all sat on it that was something I, I desperately uh, sought uh, which obviously we now got but it's probably 10 times bigger than than that did did it when you were flying as a rider? Did it never entertain um, you? Never entertain the idea of actually becoming a professional. Uh, one thing I am in life, uh, I would hope, is I'm very realistic in in my uh, in my mind, and I simply wasn't good enough. It's as simple as that. One, I wasn't good enough. Two, I wasn't well connected enough. Three, I'm probably too tall, and I couldn't have done the weight. So put all the combinations together, it it, it never dawned on me really to do the professional side of things. Um, I would like to think I'm a far better trainer than I was rider. So, um, but I, I, you know, when I speak to my jockeys and my lads and at home, I am very uh, aware when they use various expressions and how the horse feels and how it moves and is breathing. You know, I'm very uh, in tune with all that through my riding. So that that uh, experience was never lost on me. And what the riding did is enable me to get into so many different yards. And albeit they were, you know, predominantly upon a point yards, it's amazing what you learn about your feeding, routine, horses' well-being and how different people do things and the level of work they could take and what 
what you could put the you know the pressure you could put on a horse to make it improve and it never ceased to amaze me how much work a horse could take to get fit uh, and you want a horse fit happy mentally and enjoying life and um, that that's what I probably picked up from my riding and put into my my training then okay so you mentioned that you you were training so what was the overlap with training and riding what was a catalyst to start Andrew Lowry giving you a horse to... yeah, well it, it was a funny one I rode for a chap called John Moore for about eight or ten years I suppose and then I did buy one myself uh, how it all started was a horse called Reboa Star I paid a thousand guineas for it and my wife and I or now wife she's my girlfriend then <clears throat> we just thought we'd have one for a bit of fun so we bought this little semi-detached house we had three stables there bought a horse as I said called Reboa Star um, my wife would ride it I'd ride it. it it was just a pure fun thing really anyway the horse won and Andrew Lowry rang me up and he had a couple under rules at the time in Lambourne and uh, he said, um, would you consider training a horse for me? I said, um, yeah. I said, no, no problem, really. What, um, what made you call me? And he said, uh, well, I've got horses in the yard that you bought Reboa Star from. And he told me some mad Welshman had bought it, thinking they were going to win races with it. And he'd never win a race as long as it's got a hole in his bottom. <laughs> so he said, uh, when it did win, that was good enough for me. I thought you must be able to train. Uh, so I'd like to have a point appointed with you. So, and, and Andrew's very supportive. He's a very knowledgeable man, and uh, we got on well. He's very honest, very straightforward character to deal with. Like I would think, uh, I behave, just keep things very simple and very transparent. And we've always got on, and, you know, unfortunately, Andrew, whatever, 15, 16, 17 years on, has still got horses with me to this day, and it's, it's great to have it. Now, I'm told that the, the first yard was sort of part of a business park or something, quite unusual sort of setting. Well, it was, it was actually at the bottom of a mountain. Um, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a funny one, really. It was at sort of a bottom of a mountain, and uh, I, I managed to get a permit licence where, where basically you could train horses owned by yourself or the family. And for some unknown reason, it was purely random, but the inspector, every year you have a yearly inspection, and the inspector rang me up and said, oh, um, the, the committee who basically grant all these licences to all the trainers uh, want to have a day out to see what they're actually licensing because they have all the paperwork and you know where they sit in their head office in London but they never actually go out and see all these yards and he said I'm down in Wales we'd, we'd love to have a look around the few yards would you consider your yard being seen I said yeah no problem and I try and keep everything neat and quite clinical I, I like things structured and um, look it was a little semi-detached house with, with a couple of stables in the back garden but it was neat and tidy and whatever anyway they all came round and they said, oh, where do you, you know, where do you gallop them? Where do you get them fit? So it, jump in the Jeep, boys, I said. And uh, I had Lord this and Lord that in, in with me. And they were lovely chaps. We had a great day. And I took them up the mountain. And they just looked at me and said, gee whiz, we can see why you get them fit here. And horses love life. And it was literally a side of a mountain. And it was mountain after mountain. It was in the Welsh Valleys. And uh, I said, look, I'd, I'd love to go for a full licence. And they said, no problem. Send in the forms and we'll, we'll grant you a full license from you. So fortunately they did, they granted me the, the license in that environment. Um, but of course, it just wasn't efficient. Once I started growing in numbers, uh, you know, we were boxing horses to the, to the mountain then because we just couldn't get enough there quick enough. And we were doing sort of, we built up, I bought a little parcel of land and um, put a few extra stables and we just needed to, to uh, increase our efficiency by a bigger yard. Right, so we mentioned before you've so you moved to Pat Wilkin on Go Cup Day in, in two thousand and eight. I mean, how big a leap of faith was it to upgrade to to here? It, it it's staggering looking back. Uh, I agreed to buy the premises, but in reality, I didn't have any money. So I rang the the vendor uh, the day after I'd agreed to buy and said, "Look, we've got a little problem. I haven't actually got any cash." And he said, "What do you mean you haven't got any cash?" I said, "Well, nothing actually." So I did a deal whereby I rented the land for four for five years with a fixed price to acquire it at any stage. So I sold my house and I was very fortunate the property market had moved with me. And we had about 225 grand of cash of equity out of the house. Um, and I sold it and said to my wife, oh, no problem, we'll move into a caravan and we'll go onto this site, we're gonna lease it. And don't worry, I'll sort everything out. Uh, and you know, I look back, I think, how did she agree to it all, really? And how did I even think that I would do it? But I, I did. And I put a gallop in, which cost me 140 grand at the time. I spent 43,000 on a, uh, like a wood cabin lodge uh, for effect for us to live in. 
and I put up 20, 16 stables uh, and that's what got us going basically and we um, we were doing that and, 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 and the gallop all worked nicely and I was just renting the land and that's how it started and of course we just started to uh, blossom and train a few winners. I always remember I went, uh, we had a pointer pointer who went under rules with me, the owner said no problem take it under rules and it won at Newbury, um, really nice race with a horse called King's Euro and Lydia Hislop interviewed me on Racing UK and it stands out in my mind because the horse won well, it was a nice day and she interviewed me and said, you know, asked all the right questions and I was saying, look, I bought a new yard, I want to expand, I want to this, I want that and uh, the phone just never stopped. It literally, from that day in possibly two, late 2008, early 2009, possibly the sort of February time, 2009, I think it was, and, and, and the phone just kept ringing and the Irish, for whatever reason, took a shine to me uh, and the horses kept arriving. I had a sort of a unique selling point I suppose I was probably extremely competitive on my prices I was growing I was young I was keen I was different uh, and like we've seen with all these trainers now you know now I've been in the job a lot longer you, you sort of a honeymoon period where a lot of owners will send you the horses try you out and see if you work for them and that's really what happened and the whole whole job blossomed and I just couldn't build stables quick enough at the premises really but you know we had the core ingredient which was the gallops uh, and, and my wife was happy enough to live in the lodge, um, albeit we didn't have planning for it at the time, and that became a tricky issue when they, they wanted to take it down, but eventually we got through that, we got the planning, and uh, eight, nine years on, we got planning for a house and built the house and moved in, so three kids later, living in that same lodge uh, was a bit tricky, but look, it's like everything, we had nothing to start with, and um, you know, I relish the fact that we, we built it from nothing. Right, and I want to wind you back a bit, because... I'm imagining there's quite a few young lads that ride a few point-to-point -point winners and they might even have a, a steep hill or even a mountain. I mean, but you obviously got the knack of getting horses fit. And so, I mean, there's not that many books out there how to become a great trainer. No. So, I mean, where did you learn to get horses fit? Because it can't be that easy. You're making it sound like it's... Yeah, no, it's funny you say that. You lack confidence, you lack understanding when you when you start. Uh, but one thing I am is very, very receptive. I take in everything. Um, it doesn't matter who I speak to, whether it's King Charles or or, or someone in the yard. I, I take everyone's views and opinions and then make my own conclusions. And through my point-to-point -point riding and going into various yards, I felt I collaborated all the good bits from all the yards I'd gone into and, and then it was my job to sort of implement that on my own horses and it was trial and error because the one thing you don't know about a racehorse you can train it extremely well it can be fit happy healthy but actually if it's very slow it's not going to win so you had to have the right ability so that was my key ingredient to start with I always I was obsessed with statistical information on trainers um, strengths and weaknesses horses strengths and weaknesses tracks form um, I absolutely, you know, I just love it and live and breathe it. And then I was probably obsessive over it, really. So we'd analyse the horse, we'd bring it home, and we'd do things a bit differently and try and tweak it and run it in different types of races. A lot of it was often, I felt at that time, horses could be improved in their fitness levels and the placing of the horses, as importantly, was um, was my strengths. Now, where I got all that from, if I was to be brutally honest, I read Martin Pipe's autobiography about 20 times. I absolutely loved it, and I read it and read it and read it. Uh, and that's where uh, I took most of my um, uh, thought process from, really, if I was to be honest. Build that in with the, the, the yards I'd ridden in, and that's where I sort of trial and error then until I started training winners, and I had a recipe that worked. Now, one of the things parallels with you and Martin Pike was Martin Pike was known to like landing a bit of a touch in the ring. His dad was a bookie, you know, the, the Pipes would land some massive gambles. Um, some of my interviewees, you know, are, are, a lot of them are gamblers. Uh, Brett Lloyd, I've spoke to recently, Andrew Lowry. I'm, I'm yet to get David Lovell, who's a bit camera shy, but I spoke to his brother James. I mean, they've mentioned you in their tales of landing gambles. You know, get a horse, give it to you, like you've just explained, you get it fitter. Mm. Is it... Um, well, first of all, can you tell us about the dead or alive point to point gamble? This is made a book. I've been Andrew sent me some uh, clips from a book, so can you yeah, tell us about that one? It, well, of course I can. Yeah, look, uh, basically I was fortunate enough once I started training a few winners. Um, 
David and James Lovell's dad said, uh, the late John Lovell, who was a lovely chap, um, said, look, do you want to buy me uh, a racehorse? I, I, I want to go and win the Dunraven Bowl. So that was his sort of aspiration to win a few point of points and take it to the, sort of the premier uh, final end of the point of point world in Wales. So I said, yeah, no problem. So away I go and I, I buy this horse. And it was unfortunate John passed away um, in the interim and uh, that horse continued, won a couple of races, but it wasn't good enough. And Dave and uh, Dave and Brett uh, said to me, "Look, can you go and buy a horse? We want a uh, we want a good one, uh, and we want to win that race." So out I go and I go to Doncaster Sales. I remember it to this day. Uh, it was fourteen thousand guineas and out of Ireland, but I had plenty upon a point. Uh, plenty of rules for me in, in in Ireland. I run. I forget who it was, Brett or Dave. The the boys they were they worked in tandem at the time, and um, I ran. I said I got just the job for for this. So anyway, we get it home. We start working. I said, "Look." for its level that it's going to be competing in this is an aeroplane and uh, Dave and Brett were never frightened to have a few quid on one as you know and they said to me look it would be nice if we could pay for this horse uh, you know and um, before we start it's cost us a few quid to buy it and train and I said yeah leave it to me no problem so they said how are you going to do it I said I don't I don't know yet I said let me put my thinking cap on anyway uh, I had a license at this time. We started having runners under rules and things. And I thought, well, if I go locally, we'll never ever get a price on this horse uh, because everyone knows me. And usually our horses are just three, four points lower than they should be before you even start. But I was not really well, well known. I hadn't really started to crystallize the job in, in the racing world. So uh, we all decided we were going to take it a banger race course. It was the inside of the race course, but it was a point to point there. So Anyway, I think I had five runners at Warwick the same day and I drive the trailer to, uh, to Bangor for this point of point. But I just wanted to make, you know, cross the T's, dot the I's to get it right for the boys because I knew they, they knew how to bet. Anyway, the betting side of it was never my division. My job was getting the, the right horse in the right race to give it the best chance of winning, ideally at the right price for them. So uh, we went to Bangor and I think it opened up about 10 to 1 and... I think Brett and, and possibly James uh, at the time, they sort of organised a gang of uh, people to put on their £50 here, £50 there. And all I remember was uh, he's 10 to 1. And then I think in the end, he went to 5 to 1 on and then he was cleared off the board as well. Uh, and I, I'm sitting in the jockey's changing room because I, I hadn't long given up really. And I was with my jockey. And he said, what's the plan? I said, jump out, don't look behind. I said, no one will ever get near you. Just make certain you keep him upright and, and do your job. Don't miss him today. No problem, he said. So I get up and uh, Richard Burton, a good pal of mine who used to ride against top top class uh, national um, champion Pana Point jockey, said, what, what are you doing up here, Tim? Jesus, what have you brought up here? I said, oh, just this little maiden uh, pointer. I said, he's all right, got a bit of form in Ireland, fingers crossed he'll run well. Oh, I said, oh, I'm glad about that. He said, I'm riding um, full brother to Big Bucks. He said, for David Minton, the bloodstock agent. And to say my heart sunk was an understatement. I think that horse, or whatever it was, I'm sure it was big bucks, but it, it, it was a horse certainly of equivalent that. And, and my heart sank. And I thought, my word, you know, you've got one win in the stayers hurdle and a full brother to him or half brother to him. And I'm trying to win with this, this uh, second-hand horse out of Ireland. But anyway, sure as we did, we won. That was second. And that was jumping the last when Dead or Alive was walking back to the paddock. It was unbelievable. And the feeling, I, you know, I'm getting goose pimples even talking about it now. It, was, um, it wasn't so much even the winning. It was the, the camaraderie that Brett and Dave brought to it. And it, it was just such an enjoyable experience, really. Uh, and I didn't earn any money out of the gambling. I'm not a gambler. It's just not my gig. Truthfully, I haven't got the interest in it. But I became very fashionable with those type of characters because... If I was to be truthful, between Andrew Lowry of Optum Racing and then Dave and Brett, uh, you know, probably backing a lot of horses who are longer priced than they possibly would have been if they'd been with different trainers at the time, I became more more noticed by uh, and, and well thought of, I suppose, and regarded as someone who can win a race when the money's down. And that's how that evolved. Is it harder for a trainer when you know that the owners gamble? Uh, is it harder? Is it harder? That's a very good question. Uh, yeah, I'd be telling you lies if I didn't think and I didn't worry about it. I do. Um, however, through experience and age now, uh, I look back and think, well, why did I worry? You know, you, you, you're doing a job, you're doing your best. 
uh, I always am quite meticulous in my approach and I uh, cross every T, dot every I and, and then really it's up to the horse to do its job. Now if the horses are in form and they're flying and everything's going well, more often than not they would run to form. Um, if horses are a bit out of form, that's when I would worry more because it's a little bit more hit and miss with them and you're not as accurate as you'd like to be simply because you don't know if a horse is um, out, out of sorts. That became very tricky. But by the end, you know, I had some 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 boys who would like some lumpy bets from, you know, obviously Brett and Dave, uh, Andrew, Michael Owen, the footballer and things. You know, I, I've had a lot of... Um, uh, characters like that and they would have a considerable amount of money and in the end I became a little more conditioned but you you definitely think about it a, a great deal more I'm, and the biggest day probably in my life was Harry Finlay uh, absolute character of the sport and, and Glenn is uh, you know he, he was great and Jim I remember all the boys they, they were great characters to deal with they really were and we had a, a three-year-old juvenile running at Fosslass and Harry never really got involved too much it was always Jim and Glenn I deal with on entries and declarations Harry would just ring on the day you know if I told the boys today's the day he'll win Harry get on the phone he must have rung me 20 times that morning I spoke to him like three months before and uh, he said will it win I said look it jumps well you've got Dickie Johnson riding it it's in the right race all known form the horse will win fine have you walked the course is the ground okay yeah I said I walked the course ground's fine uh why do you like the horse so much and he kept asking me more and more and you you know you're trying to battle away and I, I remember the horse was three to one and I literally put the phone down like that it went from three to one to three to one on within ah oh, it couldn't have been 30 seconds then my heart sank you know and I thought oh my god to move the market that much at that price that takes some doing but the horse duly won eight lengths uh started a great relationship with um the Finleys and uh you know so of course you think about it more um but by god it made the winning even better you know you, you get an extra special buzz out of it when you know they, they're so excited as well <coughs> unfortunately that job is up and down that's the trouble uh you know it's the gambling is it's, it's all euphoric if uh, if we win and of course it's all down in the mouth if we don't more so than an, uh, an owner who's just enjoying it and having the day out and going down with his wife and kids to have a bit of sport so there's an added pressure but um it's all part of the job all right tim For, uh the final part now for most of this we've talked about um you getting horses from other people you know they've improved and they've got you you know probably watched from afar thinking you know bloody hell like that could have been me i mean it's you've you've had it come back and bite you with uh la milos was a horse uh, trained by you then went on to win the hennessy for another yard how, how do you deal with blows like that or don't you really see those types of things as a blow look it's frustrating uh I was fortunate enough to, to buy the horse at a very sensible price and I sold it to some great friends of mine. They later uh, sold um, parts of their shares to, to um, three other partners. Uh, so six shares in the horse, three I knew very well, three I, the other three I didn't really know. Uh, for one reason or t'other, which we never, we've never really got the bottom of it, if the truth be told, uh, they, the three in Wales fell out with the three which were predominantly based in Antigua uh, and they decided to uh, separate the partnership. From my perspective it was unfortunate in that the three from who were predominantly based in Antigua uh, had or wanted to spend more money on buying out uh, the three Welsh um, owners and when they did buy them out they no longer wanted to keep the horse with me because they thought I was too sort of engaged with the you know the the welsh base owners really so it's a blow i'm not going to tell any lies we bought the horse i nurtured him he won five races for you just hit in the pinnacle of his career uh which obviously um dan skelton had the sort of fortunate end of but on the other hand i analyzed it after the horse won the race was there anything i could have done differently uh, prior to that horse leaving the yard i don't think there was the horse had been very successful for me you know he's got a great pedigree um i thought i'd done well buying him for for what we did and it's unfortunate set of circumstances that led that particular horse to be taken away you know yeah we probably could have had another thousand horses go away and it wouldn't really make anything like as big an impact but do you know what we run a business i've 
a family, I've got three kids, and you sometimes think it's a horse galloping around a green field over a few fences. You've just got to put things into perspective. You know, as long as we've got our health and we're happy. Um, I've been on the other end of that. You know, I was fortunate enough to get Beshabar, Paul Nichols, um, at the time, had a division with um, Harry Finley and Paul Barber. Beshabar turned up on my doorstep. He unseated at the Cheltenham November meeting. He was second at the festival. He won, sorry, at Doncaster. He was second at the festival, and then he won the Scottish National four runs later. So I'd been on the, the, the right end of that one. It's part of our industry, and you've got to be man enough to uh, accept those scenarios. And um, yeah, look, I'd rather, you know, would I would I rather him be in my yard and win it? Of course I would. Am I going to lose sleep over it now? The time's come and gone. No, I'm not. Uh, my job's doing my best for my owners, and it was just unfortunate set of circumstances. Okay, now today was the first time I've been here. And I must admit, when I was driving up to this top yard, I was thinking, bloody hell, there's no doubt, you know, there's no need to ask him how he gets his horses so fit. Mm -hmm. So can you just get, describe a bit about the, you know, how many horses can you have up here? Um, tell us a bit about the facilities and stuff. Yeah, so, so we basically developed, um, we've developed two yards. Effectively, we, in, in, in the bottom of the valley, as we call it, uh, the bottom yard, we developed 121 stables there and we were ding-dong. But what we found is every winter, we just couldn't keep them healthy. And it was deemed because it was, um, it was like a temperature inversion and, and there wasn't enough air movement and, and the like. So, and the design of the stables probably wasn't appropriate. But again, I was new, I was young, we were having the winner, so didn't see it. And like everything in life, when you have very few in, it's fine. When you grow bigger, like kids going to school, you know they go to play school, you have problems, you have coughs and snots, and that's what effectively happened. So I decided then to seek planning permission to build um, barns in a different spot, which was effectively at the top of the hill where there was far more um, sunlight, more air movement, um, less vegetation and the like, and that's what we did. And we moved the horses up and, and they flew. So uh, we decided then to move the whole operation up to the top yard and we've, we've got 90 stables now the office and you know i'd like to think it's, it's first class now really we've got the gallops we've got three schooling grounds circular deep sand gallop straight all weather gallop we got 110 acres to go and gallop around we've got roads trees forests everything that you could want really and we've got hot wash down bays we've got a system where they muck out into an aisle where a machine comes along along and takes the muck so it's very efficient uh it's very airy uh and you know, it's it's proven now that we train winners for a number of years through the winter periods, and it's made my life a lot easier to have the consistency in form. I just wish we had the hundred and twenty odd horses that we once did to put in those boxes to uh, to show that to people. But like everything, when you have a few bugs and whatever, then uh, we got um, you know owners moved and, and and left and didn't re reacquire. So we you know we smaller than we once were, but uh, I think now once we consistently prove ourselves, we can build back up again. Okay. And also, you've got holiday properties, and did I read somebody got fishing as well? Yeah. Yeah. So when we moved the uh, premises and all the racing yard to the top yard, I basically had 120 stables. So. Uh, having my property background uh, and my hunger, I suppose, and, and desire, I thought, right, how can I make this work for me and uh, not make that a complete disaster, really? And the truth is, the horses have paid for the bottom yard. I now build in another yard. It's not too many trainers will build a 120 box sort of state-of-the-art yard and then say, oh, that doesn't work, we'll just build a new one. Uh, so I had to make it pay. So what I did is started converting it quietly into little business units. And yeah, we've got a, a, a probably 35 or tenants down there now from office users to veterinary practice uh, animal physio and, and, and therapy rooms uh, cafe um, storage all sorts really and, and that opened my mind and once we had the first one or two tenants I thought oh gosh this is working better than I could have ever expected and it just developed anyway uh, I worked at the finance on, on building the new yard for the horses and I wanted to sort of break even so the desire in the bottom yard was to hit a certain rental level that would cover the the finance on the top yard so I thought god it's just not going to be enough so I decided now we'll try something else and that's when I went in for planning permission for holiday lodges I thought I'll try it you never know if it'll work anyway got the planning and lo and behold COVID kicked in so I built the the lodges as quickly as I could and uh, I think I had my first letting in the August or September I, I just 
just blew me away really how they were just full all the time so i knew the the location and locality would work uh so that led me on to thinking right what else can i do how how can i add value to the site so it evolved from that really so now yeah we you know we're in for planning permission for 15 acres of fishing lakes because ideally you want to attract people to the site and have something for them to do to keep them on site we are in for 36 more holiday lodges uh, we are building a equine hospital here so we we've diversified the business into all aspects and really it's just pulling a bit from everything just to to safeguard ourselves but um obviously that enables me to do my hobby which is training horses and uh with covid uh, uh, and and the hard times we went through uh they're probably the best thing i ever did and and it's all quite low intensity stuff the property once you've sort of built it and let it out it sort of looks after itself so enables me to crack on with the horses Kenny, you talked about your family um i understand one of your sons has got the the riding bug at least one of your sons champion that that's right yeah i three children two boys and a girl and the two eldest the boy and the girl um uh the lad especially ed he's um yeah he he loves the pony racing always wanted a pony race and has been with the horses from scratch and decided uh he couldn't ride in britain till you're nine in the pony racing so we ended up taking him to ireland at eight and he developed there and he, he, he's just very very talented uh no other way of saying it really i appreciate my son but he is or he isn't and, and he is and ended up two years later he was irish champion jockey which took a bit of doing from wales and down to the ferry every Saturday night. I think we did 16 weekends on the trot, nearly killed me. But anyway, we did it and he was British champion on uh, what they call 138 centimetres and 148 centimetres. We've had some great days. Uh, and it, the climax that then was um, Tom Malone, the bloodstock agent. Uh, he said, look, I'd like to win the, the Dingle Derby. I'd been trying for 10 years or whatever it is. Anyway, he bought a horse uh, and uh, he said, Ed can ride it and uh, they all, at the time he was 11 years of age he's you know he's a pup and they also know oh, i don't know if he's man enough to do this job anyway he won the race and uh, you know the likes of ruby walsh and um aiden coleman uh, noel feely barry garrity you know big big name jockeys rode in a lot of these races and uh, for, for my son obviously to win it was a phenomenal um feeling and um my daughter also she's in different disciplines in the horses she does what we call showing and working hunter ponies but again she's got to the top of her field and she she was fortunate to win that horse of the year show and was second last year which is basically a Cheltenham festival of, of um of racing then for example so i'm fortunate two of them really follow follow my passion seem to love it so we'll uh, we'll see how it continues but i would think edward would want to go on and train and, and possibly ride as well now, coming to the final part, compared to most trainers, you're still a young man. So how do you see the future, without getting too much into all the politics of horse racing, but how do you see the future from your perspective? From my perspective, look, the, the whole industry now is very driven by the big days. So even, you know, a Saturday at Newbury is getting dimmed down now because it's all about Cheltenham in March, you know. And I, I find that a frustrating side of it. You can win some very, very big races, but all oh, right, what race will you take on in Cheltenham? So for me, it's all too centred around one day when there's some lovely days races, you know, to be had. But fundamentally for me, uh, I have changed what I, I do in the type of horse I buy. I tend to buy a younger and... Um, untried horse with a with a nice pedigree which you hope will develop into being a nice horse what is definitely driving me now is ed uh, my son is is going to be eligible to ride uh, from next september and my hunger to supply him with a number of horses to start him off as an amateur in point of points and then possibly in the rules i i the burning desire i i promise you is burning loud and uh, and the flame is firing so we i'm already on the process of trying to buy horses for him that he can get going on i would love to buy horses to run in grand nationals and and gold cups and fox hunters where where possibly he could ride them because that would give me um no no greater buzz uh, the 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 immense feeling of having your you know your child riding i i often you know peter bowen and karen um and i have great friends and to see sean and james and <coughs> connor brace ben jones all lads who are out of parents that i know uh it's it's this marvelous feeling really and um 
I would love to uh, to see see Ed riding in those big big races for me. Really, that that's something that burns, you know, live inside me, and, and that's where I see my future. Really, is trying to create a, something for him to to take on. Brilliant. Well, on that note, Tim Vaughan, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. All right, Tim. Uh, the final part, though, for most of this, we've talked about um, you getting horses from other people. You know, they've improved and they've got you. You know, probably watch from afar, thinking, you know, bloody hell, like that could have been me. I mean, it's you've you've had it come back and bite you with uh, La Milos. It's a horse uh, trained by you, then went on to win the Hennessy for another yard. How how do you deal with blows like that? Or don't you really see those types of things as a blow? Look, it's frustrating. Uh, I was fortunate enough to, to buy the horse at a very sensible price and I sold it to some great friends of mine. They later uh, sold um, parts of their shares to, to um, three other partners. Uh, so six shares in the horse, three I knew very well, the, three I, the other three I didn't really know. Uh, for one reason or t'other, which we never, we've never really got the bottom of it, truth be told, uh, they, the three in Wales fell out with the three which were predominantly based in Antigua uh, and they decided to uh, separate the partnership. From my perspective it was unfortunate in that the three from who were predominantly based in Antigua uh, had or wanted to spend more money on buying out uh, the three Welsh um, owners and when they did buy them out they no longer wanted to keep the horse with me because they thought i was too sort of engaged with the you know the, the welsh base owners really so it's a blow i'm not going to tell any lies we bought the horse i nurtured him he won five races for you just hitting the pinnacle of his career uh which obviously um dan skelton had the sort of fortunate end of but on the other hand, I analysed it after the horse won the race. Was there anything I could have done differently prior to that horse leaving the yard? I don't think there was. The horse had been very successful for me. You know, he's got a great pedigree. Um, I thought I'd done well buying him for, for what we did. And it's unfortunate set of circumstances that led that particular horse to be taken away. You know, yeah, we probably could have had another thousand horses go away and it wouldn't really make anything like as big an impact but do you know what we run a business I've a family I've got three kids and you sometimes think it's a horse galloping around a green field over a few fences you've just got to put things into perspective you know as long as we've got our health and we're happy um, I've been on the other end of that you know I was fortunate enough to get Beshabar Paul Nichols um, at the time at a division with um, Harry Finley and Paul Barber Beshabar turned up on my doorstep, he unseated at the Cheltenham November meeting, he was second at the festival, he won, sorry, at Doncaster, he was second at the festival and then he won the Scottish National four runs later. So I'd been on the, the, the right end of that one, it's part of our industry and you've got to be man enough to uh, accept those scenarios and um, yeah, look, I'd rather, you know, would I, would I rather him be in my yard and win it? Of course I would. Am I going to lose sleep over it now? The time's come and gone? No, I'm not. Uh, my job's doing my best for my owners, and it was just an unfortunate set of circumstances. Okay, now today was the first time I've been here, and I must admit, when I was driving up to this top yard, I was thinking, bloody hell, there's no doubt, you know, there's no need to ask him how he gets his horses so fit. Mm -hmm. So can you just get, describe a bit about the, you know, how many horses can you have up here? Um, tell us a bit about the facilities and stuff. Yeah, so so we basically developed um, we've developed two yards. Effectively, we in 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 the bottom of the valley, as we call it, uh, the bottom yard. We developed 121 stables there, and we were ding dong. But what we found is every winter we just couldn't keep them healthy, and it was deemed because it was um, there was like a temperature inversion, and and there wasn't enough air movement and and the like. So and the design of the stables probably wasn't appropriate. But again, I was new, I was young. We were having the winners, so didn't see it and like everything in life when you have very few in it's fine when you grow bigger like kids going to school you know they go to play school you have problems you have coughs and snots and that's what effectively happened so i decided then to seek planning permission to build um barns in a different spot which was effectively at the top of the hill where there was far more um sunlight more air movement um less vegetation and the like and that's what we did and we moved the horses up and, and they flew so uh, we decided then to move the whole operation up to the top yard and we've we've got 90 stables now 
the office and you know i'd like to think it's, it's first class now really we've got the gallops we've got three schooling grounds circular deep sand gallop straight all weather gallop we got 110 acres to go and gallop around we've got roads trees forests everything that you could want really and we've got hot wash down bays we've got a system where they muck out into an eye where a machine comes along along and takes the muck so it's very efficient uh it's very airy uh and you know it's it's proven now that we train winners for a number of years through the winter periods and it's made my life a lot easier to have the consistency in form i just wish we had the 120 odd horses that we once did to put in those boxes to uh, to show that to people but like everything when you have a few bugs and whatever then uh, we got um you know owners moved and and, and left and didn't re reacquire so we you know we smaller than we once were but uh, i think now once we consistently prove ourselves we can build back up again okay and also you've got holiday properties and did i read somebody got fishing as well yeah yeah so when we moved the uh premises and all the racing yard to the top yard i basically had 120 stables so uh, having my property background uh, and my hunger, I suppose, and, and desire, I thought, right, how can I make this work for me and uh, not make that a complete disaster, really? And the truth is, the horses had paid for the bottom yard. I now build in another yard. It's not too many trainers will build a 120 box sort of state-of-the-art yard and then say, oh, that doesn't work. We'll just build a new one. Uh, so I had to make it pay. So what I did is started converting it quietly into little business units. And, yeah, we've got a, a, a probably... 35 or tenants down there now from office users to veterinary practice uh, animal physio and, and, and therapy rooms uh, cafe um, storage all sorts really and, and that opened my mind and once we had the first one or two tenants I thought oh gosh this is working better than I could have ever expected and it just developed anyway uh, I worked at the finance on, on building the new yard for the horses and I wanted to sort of break even so the desire in the bottom yard was to hit a certain rental level that would cover the, the finance on the top yard so I thought god it's just not going to be enough so I decided now we'll try something else and that's when I went in for planning permission for holiday lodges I thought I'll try it you never know if it'll work anyway got the planning and lo and behold covid kicked in so i built the the lodges as quickly as i could and uh, i think i had my first letting in the august or september i, I just just blew me away really how they were just full all the time so i knew the the location and locality would work uh so that led me on to thinking right what else can i do how how can i add value to the site so it evolved from that really so now yeah we you know we're in for planning permission for 15 acres of fishing lakes because ideally you want to attract people to the site and have something for them to do to keep them on site we are in for 36 more holiday lodges uh we are building a equine hospital here so we we've diversified the business into all aspects and really it's just pulling a bit from everything just to to safeguard ourselves but um obviously that enables me to do my hobby, which is training horses. And uh, with COVID uh, uh, and and the hard times we went through, uh, they're probably the best thing I ever did. And and it's all quite low intensity stuff. The property once you've sort of built it and let it out, it sort of looks after itself. So enables me to crack on with the horses. Okay, now you talked about your family. Um, I understand one of your sons has got the the riding bug. At least one of your sons, champion. That that's right. Yeah, I, I three children, two boys and a girl, and the two eldest, the boy and the girl, um, uh, the lad, especially Ed. He's um, uh, yeah, he he loves the pony racing. Always wanted a pony race, and has been with the horses from scratch. And decided uh, he couldn't ride in Britain till he nine in the pony racing. So we ended up taking him to Ireland at eight, and he developed there. And he, he he's just very very talented. Uh, no other way of saying it really I appreciate my son but he is or he isn't and, and he is and ended up two years later he was Irish champion jockey which took a bit of doing from Wales and down to the ferry every Saturday night I think we did 16 weekends on the trot and nearly killed me but anyway we did it and he was British champion on uh, what they call 138 centimetres and 148 centimetres we've had some great days uh, and it climax that then was um, Tom Malone the bloodstock agent uh, he said, look, I'd like to win the, the Dingle Derby. I've been trying for 10 years or whatever it is. Anyway, he bought a horse uh, and uh, he said, Ed can ride it. And uh, they all 
at the time he was 11 years of age he's you know he's a pup and they all said oh i don't know if he's man enough to do this job anyway he won the race and uh, you know the likes of ruby walsh and um aiden coleman uh, noel feely barry garrity you know big big name jockeys rode in a lot of these races and uh, for, for my son obviously to win it was a phenomenal um feeling and um my daughter also she's in different disciplines in the horses she does what we call showing and working hunter ponies but again she's got to the top of the field and she she was fortunate to win a horse of the year show and was second last year which is basically a Cheltenham festival of of um of racing then for example so i'm fortunate two of them really follow follow my passion seem to love it so we'll uh, we'll see how it continues but i would think edward would want to go on and train and, and possibly ride as well now, coming to the final part, compared to most trainers, you're still a young man. So how do you see the future, without getting too much into all the politics of horse racing, how do you see the future from your perspective? From my perspective, look, the, the whole industry now is very driven by the big days. So even, you know, a Saturday at Newbury is getting dimmed down now because it's all about Cheltenham in March, you know. And I, I find that a frustrating side of it. You can win some very, very big races, but all oh, right, what race will you take on in Cheltenham? So for me, it's all too centred around one day when there's some lovely days racing, you know, to be had. But fundamentally for me, uh, I have changed what I, I do in the type of horse I buy. I tend to buy a younger and... Um, untried horse with a with a nice pedigree which you hope will develop into being a nice horse what is definitely driving me now is ed uh, my son is is going to be eligible to ride uh, from next september and my hunger to supply him with a number of horses to start him off as an amateur in point of points and then possibly in the rules i i the burning desire i i promise you is burning loud and uh, and the flame is firing so we i'm already on the process of trying to buy horses for him that he can get going on i would love to buy horses to run in grand nationals and and gold cups and fox hunters where where possibly he could ride them because that would give me um no no greater buzz uh, the 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 immense feeling of having your you know your child riding i i often you know peter bowen and karen um and i have great friends and to see sean and james and <coughs> connor brace ben jones all lads who are out of parents that i know uh it's it's a marvelous feeling really and um i would love to uh to see see ed riding in those big big races for me really that that's something that burns you know live inside me and, and that's where i see my future really is trying to create a, something for him to to take on brilliant well on that note tim vaughan thank you very much absolute pleasure